This is Space Time Series 21, Episode 91, for broadcast on the 16th of November 2018. Coming up on Space Time, supermassive black holes about to merge as galaxies collide, the closest ever approach to the Sun, and New Zealand's Electron rocket blasts off into orbit again. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Astronomers have a spectacular window seat as two supermassive black holes are about to merge as their galaxies collide. The findings reported in the journal Nature show the two galaxies slowly being drawn together by the force of gravity, merging into a tangled mass of dense gas and dust. Structure is giving way to chaos, and hiding behind this messy cloud of material are two monstrous supermassive black holes, each nestled at the centre of their own galaxy and they're now excitingly close to coalescing into a single mega-black hole. Scientists made the discovery after completing the largest systematic survey of nearby galaxies using high-resolution images taken by the giant 10-metacake observatory's adaptive optic system and near-infrared camera. They then compared their observations with over 20 years of archival Hubble Space Telescope images. The survey data allows astronomers to pinpoint the type of galaxies most likely to harbour close pairs of supermassive black holes. The study's lead author Michael Koss from Eureka Scientific in Kirkland, Washington, says it's the first large systematic survey of 500 galaxies to discover and isolate a population of hidden late-stage black hole mergers that are heavily obscured and highly luminous. The authors found a surprising number of supermassive black holes growing larger and faster in the final stages of galaxy mergers. Now, theory states that there's a supermassive black hole at the centre of every large galaxy, and when galaxies merge, so too do their supermassive black holes. While the overall process takes billions of years, the final black hole merger happens in the blink of an eye. A supermassive black hole merger has never been directly observed in the electromagnetic spectrum nor is it easy to find galaxy nuclei so close together. The late stage of the merger process is so elusive because the interacting galaxies are kicking up lots of gas and dust, especially in the final most violent stages of the merger. That's because there's a thick coat of material which forms and shields the galaxy's nuclei from view in visible light. And astronomers didn't have the capability to observe this type of event until now. The problem is, heavily obscured galaxy nuclei don't have a bright point source of light at the centre, like a lot of luminous unobscured supermassive black holes do. But Koss and colleagues were able to detect them anyway, thanks to X-ray data from the Burst Alert Telescope. The authors then used the superior laser capabilities of the Keck Observatory's adaptive optic system to perform high-resolution near-infrared imaging to peer through that veil of gas and dust to distinctly see the double nucleus and uncover the hidden mergers. The findings support the theory that galaxy mergers can explain how some supermassive black holes become so monstrously large. There are lots of competing hypotheses about how this could happen. One idea is that you've got a bunch of gas in a galaxy and that's slowly, continuously feeding the supermassive black hole, making it bigger and bigger and bigger. Another is that black holes grow by merging galaxies. And the new data argues for that second case, that these galaxy mergers are really critical for fueling the growth of supermassive black holes. 
And just as excitingly, this survey may also help astronomers actually observe a black hole merger taking place. You see, when supermassive black holes collide, not only do they create a mega black hole, but they also unleash powerful energy bursts in the form of gravitational waves. These ripples in space-time, first predicted by Albert Einstein, were recently detected by groundbreaking gravitational wave interferometry experiments. Like a siren just before a tsunami, gravitational waves reach Earth slightly earlier than light. But in order to emit such an event, astronomers need to know where to look and what object to look for. Gravitational wave detectors tell astronomers what area to look in, and COSA's research tells them whether the object's likely to host a supermassive black hole merger. Koss and colleagues focused on galaxies with an average distance of around 330 million light-years from Earth. Many of the galaxies at this distance are similar in size to the Milky Way. These new observations are also providing us with a bit of a preview as to what's likely to happen in our own cosmic backyard in about 3.7 billion years from now. You see, that's when our Milky Way galaxy merges, or collides really, with the neighbouring M31 galaxy in Andromeda. And as a result of that merger, Andromeda's supermassive black hole and the Milky Way supermassive black hole Sagittarius A star will also collide. As for Koss and colleagues, their next move will involve using the Keck Observatory's infrared imaging spectrometer, CIRUS. A CIRUS will allow them to measure both the rotation rate and the mass of the black holes. And that's important because it will make it possible to estimate how long it takes before the supermassive black holes collide and merge, and how strong the resultant gravitational wave signal might be. I'm Stuart Gary. You're listening to Space Time. NASA's Parker Solar Probe has set a new record flying closer to the Sun than any other spacecraft ever. The 685kg probe skimmed by the Sun, flying just 24 million kilometres above our star's visible surface, just 78 days after its launch. And that's far closer than any other spacecraft has ever gone. The previous record was set by the Helios B probe back in 1976. The Parker Solar Probe's manoeuvre exposed the spacecraft to the intense heat and solar radiation of the complex solar wind environment. The Parker Solar Probe is the culmination of six decades of scientific progress. It's allowed scientists to undertake humanity's first ever close visit to our local star, and that's going to have implications not just here on Earth, but for a deeper understanding of the universe as a whole. At its closest approach, known as perihelion, the Parker Solar Probe reached the top speed of more than 343,000 kilometres an hour, in the process setting a new record for spacecraft speed. Along with new records for closest approach to the Sun, the Parker Solar Probe will also break its own speed record as its orbit draws closer and closer to the star and the spacecraft moves faster and faster at perihelion, with a final close approach of 6.16 million kilometres from the Sun's surface expected in 2024. During its first close encounter, the intense sunlight heated the sun-facing side of the Parker Solar Probe's heat shield, known as the Thermal Protection System, to about 440 degrees Celsius. If you think that's a bit warm and toasty, temperatures are expected to climb to over 1400 degrees Celsius as the spacecraft makes closer and closer approaches to the Sun. But all the while, the spacecraft's instruments and systems will be protected by the heat shield, which amazingly should keep them below 30 degrees Celsius. The Parker Solar Probe was launched aboard a Delta IV Heavy rocket from Space Launch Complex 37 at the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida on August 12, 2018. 
All in all, the spacecraft will use seven gravity assists around Venus to incrementally shrink its elliptical orbit around the Sun during its seven-year mission. The Parker Solar Probe is the first spacecraft to fly into the lower solar corona. The mission is designed to trace the flow of energy that heats the corona and accelerates the solar wind. The Sun's visible surface, the photosphere, has a temperature of around 6,000 degrees Celsius. Relatively cool compared to the many millions of degrees at the Sun's core. That's because normally things get cooler the further away you are from the heat source. And that's where a big problem arises which the Parker Solar Probe will hope to answer. You see, the Sun's outer atmosphere, the corona, has temperatures of more than a million degrees. So instead of getting cooler the further away you are from the Sun's heat source, things are getting hotter, and scientists want to understand why. We think the reason for this is a process called magnetic reconnection, a sudden release of energy caused by magnetic field lines connecting. Astronomers also want to study the structure and dynamics of the magnetic fields at the source of the solar wind and they want to determine what mechanisms accelerate and transport energetic particles away from the Sun. To do this, the spacecraft is equipped with five primary science instrument packages. There's an electromagnetic fields investigation to make direct measurements of the electric and magnetic fields, radio waves, pointing flux, absolute plasma density, and electron temperature. There's an integrated science investigation to measure energetic electrons, protons, and heavy ions. There's a wide-field imager comprising optical telescopes to get images of the corona and inner heliosphere. A solar wind electrons, alphas and protons instrument will count electrons, protons and helium ions and measure their properties, such as velocity, density and temperature. Finally, there's the heliospheric origins with solar probe plus study, a theory and modelling investigation to maximise the scientific return from the mission. To find out more, Andrew Dunkley is speaking with astronomer Dr. Fred Watson. Now, Fred, we head towards the sun, the Parker Solar Probe. Well, it's now uh, approaching its destination. That's the fast part of the project, uh, literally fast. We'll talk about that too. But uh, now it's got years and years of work to do. Indeed, that's right. So its destination is a series of orbits that will take it ever closer to our parent star, to the sun. The Parker Solar Probe is designed to answer some of the really deep questions about the way that the sun works. I might list them in a minute. But the bottom line in terms of the news at the moment is that after a successful launch on the on the 12th of August, not that long ago, it has now actually broken a record because it has become the closest human-made object to the sun and it will continue breaking that record throughout its mission, which goes for almost seven years. So at the moment, it's within 40 million kilometres of the sun. And remember, that compares with the 150 50 million kilometres that we are away from the sun here on Earth. So there it is on its way inwards. It's also herring along at a fairly fast rate, certainly relative to the sun, in the region of 70 kilometres per second, which is significant, (laughs) significantly faster than you and I can move most of the time. Even when you allow for the 30 kilometres per second motion of the Earth, which is taking us around the sun. So yeah, it's really knocking on. It's a relatively small spacecraft. Its mass as launched is something like 700 kilograms a little bit less in fact but the payload itself is only 50 kilograms worth that's the you know the stuff that does all the measurements so relatively lightweight but it was launched on one of the most powerful rocket launching machines available to uh, to US scientists, the Delta IV Heavy. And the reason for that was to get it into this solar orbit as rapidly as possible, because you need to go fast in order to get into the inner solar system. Yeah, well, so, when we talk about 
years of travel to get somewhere. It, it's um, it's it's not very often we get the opportunity to talk about a launch and then a couple of months later and say, well, they're there. It's there. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> But in in a sense, being there is just being in a particular orbit rather than rendezvousing with a specific planet. You know, um, I mean, we talked a, a week or so ago about the uh, the Bepi Colombo uh, spacecraft launch. Uh, and that's on its way to Mercury, but it's going to take seven years to get there with nine planetary flybys on the way because it's rendezvousing with the fastest planet in the solar system. And th- uh, this is where it all gets really. Um, weird in the minds of many people. We can send a probe to the sun in a couple of months, but we are going to take seven years to get to Mercury, which is orbiting the closest to the sun. <laughs> it's just all, it just, and people go, what? I mean, how is that possible? But it's all about the well, speed, isn't it? It, it is, it's, and, it, and it's what you're trying to achieve as well. You know, the, the Parker Solar Probe will will wind up in an orbit that is not trying to rendezvous, you know, it's not trying to slow down to go into orbit around Mercury, for example. It will whiz by Mercury really very quickly. Its um, mission is all about understanding big questions about the sun. And one of them is, well, I suppose the biggest of them all is why the corona of the sun, which is its outer atmosphere, why is that so much hotter than the surface of the sun that we see? And of course, that surface is not solid. It's a it's a layer of glowing gas, but we call it the photosphere. That surface is at a temp- temperature of somewhere in the region of five and a half to 6,000 degrees Celsius, whereas the outer corona of the sun is at a temperature measured in millions of degrees, about 10 million degrees. And it's not obvious how that gets so hot. It's actually, once again, very tenuous. It's a very rarefied gas, is the gas in the solar corona, but still there must be some mechanism that causes heat transfer to warm it up. And that's not really understood. So the Parker probe will go at least some way towards investigating that. We also want to know how the solar wind gets accelerated to the kind of million kilometre an hour speeds that it it blows at. And this is the, the wind of subatomic particles that the sun emits all the time. They bathe the inner solar system. When they get particularly energetic, we start seeing aurorae here on Earth. But we don't really know why that wind of particles should be so fast. Almost certainly all about magnetism. And so the structure and dynamics of the magnetic fields in the the lower regions of the sun's atmosphere are also targets for the solar probe to investigate. So we could start seeing answers fairly rapidly? Or, or yeah, at I think least we data, will. maybe not answers. Yeah, we won't see images because this um, spacecraft kind of hides behind its heat shield, which it'll need to do because its closest approach to the sun takes it within six million kilometres, which is, you know, almost skimming the surface of the don't, sun. Don't stick your hand out the window, basically. That's right, yeah, that's right. So it's got a fairly heavy-duty heat shield to protect the spacecraft itself and its instruments. There's nowhere to poke a camera through, so there won't be a close-up photographs. So there are other spacecraft already in orbit around the sun that can do that very well. But what the solar probe will be sensing is the magnetic fields and particle densities and things of that sort. So we'll start, I hope we'll start seeing those relatively quickly. Mm, Okay. How much danger is it in? I mean, being in that proximity to the sun and, and, you know, getting up close and personal, uh, is it in a precarious zone? In a sense, it is. And that's why the heat shield itself is heavy duty, industrial strength, carbon composites. And Hollywood um, wants its Iron Man suit back. So, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, that's right. Like most space missions, Andrew, the early phases will be relatively conservative in what they will expect the spacecraft to do. So the mission consists of 24 orbits around the sun over the next seven years, getting gradually closer and closer to the sun. So its first you know, passage across the surface of the sun will be relatively benign in the sense that it's not going as close as it will at the end. As I said, the six million kilometer range at the end of the mission is going to test the heat shield to the ultimate. But you don't do that kind of thing right at the start of the mission. You want to get all the data you can from it in those early phases and then do the audacious stuff towards the end, which is what this mission's all about. And then crash it into the sun. Um, it will actually wind up being permanently in orbit around the sun. It will eventually, it won't melt, but it will almost certainly, you know, cease to operate because its electronics will get fried by subatomic particles and things of that sort. It'll just become a chunk of metal. It'll be space debris, space junk, that's right. Oh, that's interesting. We've never never done that before. <laughs> mm. It's not like us, is it, to do that, to leave no. stuff lying and around? And I've just done my mental calculation, and it's travelling at 690,000 kilometres per hour. That's when it passes closest to the sun, that's yeah, right. It yes, it um, and, and But in America, it'll be slower, 430,000 miles an hour. <laughs> we in the um, metric just... world are much faster than you in America. Just to put it into context, that's 190 kilometres per second. Ouchie mamas. That yeah. is fast. Yeah. It's very Stocking. fast. It's about well, 120 miles per second. That's Dr Fred Watson, an astronomer with the Department of Science, speaking with Andrew Dunkley on our sister programme, Space Nuts. And this is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. New Zealand says it's now game on after successfully launching its first commercial and second orbital space mission. The flight using Rocket Lab's sleek all-black electron launch vehicle blasted into orbit from the company's Mahia Peninsula launch pad on the far eastern edge of New Zealand's North Island. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2... Plus one minute, flight is nominal. Coming up on maximum dynamic pressure. Stage one propulsion still nominal. Max dynamic pressure. Altitude 20 kilometers. Guidance is nominal. Dynamic pressure has fallen to 50% of maximum. Power pack CO2-1. AOS at Chatham's station. Minimize AOA. Entering mode burnout detect. Time to go eight seconds. Five seconds. Two seconds. Stage one, down. Separating. Stage transition started. Propulsion nominal. Vehicle is stable. Separating fairing. Fairing separation. Engine shut down. Transfer what looks nominal. The launch was managed from Rocket Lab's Mission Control Centre in Auckland, where the company also builds its electron launch vehicles. The mission had been slated to originally launch back in April, but suffered a series of delays due to ongoing technical glitches with the motor controller unit. The unit was eventually redesigned. The mission, dubbed its business time, carried six satellites and a technology demonstrator successfully placing them all into 500-kilometre-high low-Earth orbit. The Electron is a 17-metre-tall two-stage carbon composite rocket designed to carry small payloads up to 225 kilograms into low-Earth orbit. 
The first stage of the Electron is powered by nine electric pump-fed 3D-printed Rutherford rocket engines, fuelled by RP-1 kerosene and liquid oxygen propellant. The second stage uses a single Rutherford engine optimised for vacuum operations. For this mission, the Electron was also fitted with a third-stage Cori kick motor designed to circularise the payload orbit. The mission's payload included two Lima-2 satellites for Spire Global, which will join the company's existing constellation of more than 60 nanosatellites, tracking global shipping movements and monitoring weather conditions through GPS radio occultation. Also aboard the flight were two Proxima remote internet communications satellites for Australian company Fleet Space Technologies, a new Geo-Optics Tyvac nanosatellite and the Irvine 01 educational CubeSat payload built by Californian high school students. Irvine 1 is designed to carry a camera and a solar panel propulsion system. It'll collect data from orbit such as temperature and the satellite's speed, direction, location and altitude. The mission also carried a drag cell technology demonstrator. Developed by High Performance Space Structure Systems, it's designed to passively deorbit inactive satellites at the end of their operational life. The drag cell is made of an ultra-thin membrane that can be coiled up really tightly within the spacecraft and then deployed once the satellite reaches the end of its operational lifespan. The large reflective panels unfurl to increase the spacecraft's surface area, causing it to experience greater atmospheric drag. And because the cell is reflective, it also makes use of solar radiation pressure to manoeuvre, a technique known as solar sailing. This enables the satellite to be lowered towards an orbit where the aerodynamic drag takes over and literally pulls the satellite back down into Earth's atmosphere, enabling much faster deorbiting. The mission was Rocket Lab's third for its electron launch vehicle. The company's first launch in May last year successfully reached space but failed to achieve orbit. A second flight in January this year successfully placed the Dove Pioneer satellite for Planet Labs, two Lima 2 satellites for Spire Global, and a reflective sphere called the Humanity Star into orbit, sort of like a, a giant disco mirror ball. The company's planning another launch next month, and there are at least 16 flights so far planned for 2019. In fact, Rocket Lab's launch manifest is so busy, last month the company announced plans to establish a second launch site specifically to handle American payloads. That'll be at NASA's Wallops Island Flight Facility on the Virginian Mid-Atlantic Coast. I'm Stuart Gary. This is Space Time. A United Launch Alliance Atlas V rocket is blasted into orbit, carrying a new U.S. military communications satellite. The fourth advanced extremely high-frequency satellite lifted off from Space Launch Complex 41 at the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida shortly after midnight. Rock report range status. Range green. Stable at step three. ECS reduced for launch. Roger. Five. Status check. Go, Go Centaur. Go AHF-4. T-minus. Ten. Nine. Eight. Seven. Six. Five. Four. Three. We have ignition. Two. One and liftoff of the AEHF-4 mission carried by United Launch Alliance Atlas V rocket for the United States Air Force. He's going to close this control. You are hearing the voice of Patrick Moore providing launch vehicle Now passing 30 eight. seconds in a flight. Mach 1, Atlas V now supersonic. Now passing 40 seconds in a flight. And we're experiencing a uh, telemetry dropout in the uh, Denver data station. At this point in the flight, RD-180 should be throttling back up to 100% thrust. Passing through max Q. Now passing one minute into flight. Vehicle continues to drop right normally during the Back to 100% thrust as expected. 
and VOCI okay. have data now. Now, one minute, 25 seconds into flight, Atlas V rocket now weighs just one half of what it did at launch, burning propellant at a rate of 6,900 pounds per second. And we have burnout on all five SRBs. RD-180 throttling back up to full thrust, one minute, 45 seconds into flight, one minute, 50 seconds in. And we have jettison of all five solid rocket boosters. The Atlas V launch vehicle flew at its 551 configuration, which is currently the most powerful in the Atlas V fleet. Equipped with a 5-metre payload fairing, 5 strap-on solid rocket boosters assisting the RD-180 main liquid-fueled engine, and a centaur upper stage with a single RL-10 engine. The 6,168kg payload for this mission is the fourth of six new advanced extremely high-frequency communication satellites being built by Lockheed Martin for the United States Air Force Space Command. They're being used to replace the old Milstar telecommunications satellites, providing more secure communications for the armed forces of the United States, Britain, Canada and the Netherlands. They'll incorporate frequency-hopping radio technology, as well as phased-array antennas that can adapt their radiation patterns in order to block out potential jamming. The two remaining satellites in the new constellation are slated for launch next year. As well as being the 50th United Launch Alliance flight for the US Air Force, the mission was also the company's 8th launch this year, and the 131st successful launch since the company was formed back in December 2006. The United Launch Alliance's next flight will be the classified NROL-71 mission for the National Reconnaissance Office. That'll be aboard a Delta IV Heavy rocket slated for November the 29th from Space Launch Complex 6 at the Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. A new study has found that well over half of the world's population of vertebrates, from fish to amphibians and reptiles, birds and mammals, have been wiped out in just the past four decades. The findings by the World Wildlife Fund Living Planet report shows that between 1970 and 2014, there was a 60% decline on average among 16,700 wildlife populations around the world. And that equates to a loss of nearly two-thirds of all wild species. The hardest-hit regions were Central and South America and the Caribbean, where wildlife populations have declined by some 89%. And global freshwater ecosystems were also hard-hit, with populations declining by 83% worldwide. A new study has discovered a link between autism spectrum disorders and zinc deficiency in early development. A report in the journal Frontiers in Molecular Neuroscience shows how zinc shapes the connections or synapses between brain cells forming early in development through complex molecular machinery encoded by autism risk genes. Researchers found that when a signal is transferred by way of a synapse, zinc enters the target neuron, where it combined two proteins, shank 2 and shank 3. These proteins in turn cause changes in the composition and function of adjacent signal receptors called AMPARs on the neuron's surface of the synapse. Now, authors suggest that a lack of zinc during early development might contribute to autism through impaired synaptic maturation and neural circuit formation. While the findings don't directly support zinc supplementation for the prevention of autism, they do extend science's understanding of its underlying developmental abnormalities towards an eventual treatment. Well, first it was considered a serious concern, then it was deemed safe. Now, new questions are being raised about the effects of non-ionizing radiation from cell phones. The National Toxicology Program of the United States National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences has released new research suggesting a conclusive link between high levels of radiofrequency radiation and cancer in rats and mice. 
For 10 years, study involved exposing both male and female rats and mice to radiofrequency radiation just like that used in 2G and 3G cell phone technologies. The study found tumour growth in the hearts, brains and adrenal glands of the male rats. 2G and 3G networks were used because they were standard when the studies were designed and are still used for phone calls and texting. The study did not investigate Wi-Fi, 4G or 5G networks. The lowest exposure levels used in the studies was equal to the maximum local tissue exposure currently allowed for cell phone users. And it's worth pointing out this power level rarely occurs with typical cell phone use. And the highest exposure levels in the studies were some four times higher than the maximum power level permitted. Now, interestingly, the study also found longer lifespans among the exposed male rats. This may be explained by an observed decrease in chronic kidney problems, which are often the cause of death in older rats. Exposure to the radiation began in the womb for rats and at five to six weeks old for mice, and it continued for up to two years, which is most of their natural lifespans. The exposure was intermittent, 10 minutes on and 10 minutes off, totaling about nine hours each day. Levels ranged from 1.5 to 6 watts per kilogram in rats and 2.5 to 10 watts per kilogram in mice. Griffith University researchers have demonstrated a new procedure for making precise measurements of speed, acceleration, material properties and even gravitational waves possible. The findings reported in the journal Nature Communications shows how scientific research is now approaching the ultimate sensitivity allowed by the laws of quantum physics. The research saw the Griffith team, led by Professor Jeff Pride, working with photons, which are single particles of light, and using them to measure the extra distance travelled by a light beam compared to its partner reference beam as it went through a thin crystal sample which was being measured. A new study claims a plant-based or vegan diet may be best for keeping type 2 diabetes in check because of its potential to lower blood glucose and its effect on mood. The findings, reported in the British Medical Journal, are based on a review of all available evidence. The authors say that cutting out meat and animal products is associated with improved psychological well-being and quality of life, weight loss, a reduction in blood glucose and cholesterol, and it may also improve diabetic nerve pain. However, the authors note that their review is based on just eight studies, most of which had small sample sizes and all of which were observational, so they can't prove cause and effect. You're listening to Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary, and that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through Apple Podcast iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom, from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com, or from your favorite podcast download provider. Space Time's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., and available around the world on TuneIn Radio. If you want more Space Time, check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us on Twitter through at Stuart Gary, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, and on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 